conference. In the last, the last conference, we talked about the incarnation, of course. Is this okay? Yep. All right. Somebody asked if they had to believe in the real presence to go to heaven, and I think you do. You have to believe that Christ literally came in the flesh. Um, do you have to believe in the real presence of the Eucharist? Uh, I don't think so, because I think there are good Jews and Protestants and loving Muslims. And But why... The Jewish table in the back is clapping. Um, why, but why wouldn't you, right? I mean, it makes sense to believe Christ in his literal language that this is my body. And there's 2,000 years of unbroken belief. And if you just step back and think, who is Jesus Christ? He's God made flesh. Okay. And Jesus Christ promises, I will be with you until the end of the age. I will never leave you orphans. All those different promises. Okay. Well, where's that flesh? And again, I always challenge my non-Catholic Christian friends about how they relate to Jesus differently than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. Jesus Christ is God-made man, God-made flesh. And so there should be a different kind of presence about him. And that does make a difference. Um, is it required for heaven? I don't think... Well, we got applause once. We'll go with it again, though. No. So, um, I wanted to uh, finish the second conference. I had this last slide. And I wanted to make sure you saw it because we're approaching Holy Saturday. And one of the earliest homilies we have is a homily on Holy Saturday. And just notice the beautiful theology here. Jesus descends in search of our first parents, the archbishop says. Priests, weren't, priests didn't preach until about the 4th century. At the sight of the Lord, Adam cries, the Lord be with you. And Christ answers, and with your spirit. Notice who the priest is here, Adam, right? Christ is all of us. He's the community. He's the people. The Lord then took Adam by the hand and raised him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and I will give you light. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth. All who are sleeping, arise. I order you, O sleeper, awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise up, work of my hands. You who are created in my image, rise. Let us leave this place, for you are in me and I am in you. And together we form only one person, and we can never again be separated. Isn't that beautiful? But think, that's how the early Christians talked about the relationship of Jesus and his people. That he has become our, our servant. He's become our deacon. He's become our son. A child is born unto us. And we form one person. Just as any loving family forms one unit, we're getting, I think, more and more into that understanding that it is whatever we do to the least of our brothers and sisters, we do to Jesus. And notice where he meets us in our hell. huh? He doesn't wait for us to be perfect. It's the story of the uh, princess and the frog, if you will. The frog isn't getting himself beautiful before the princess kisses him. She kisses him and therefore makes him beautiful. It's the same thing with us and God's grace, right? We aren't perfect and therefore God meets us. And only allowing God to meet us can we become perfect. And so the notion of the son's vulnerability, the son's presence in concrete, actual ways is what I wanted to stress in conference two. 
The third conference is on the Holy Spirit. Okay? St. Paul must have floored the Jewish community when he said, you are now the temples of the Spirit. The Jews took great care to build their temple, started by Solomon, surviving wars and earthquakes. And the temple was the place where a good Jewish person met the Lord. But now, Paul says, look, each of the baptized, each of us is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we began the conference this morning looking at Genesis 1, we said that we're made in the God's image and likeness. The word for image there is icon. The Greek word for image there is icon. That you and I are the icons of God. Think of that. I was explaining this to one of my freshman classes at SLU, and I said, well, you guys know what an icon is, right? I'm like, well, I said, you know, on your computer, it's something you don't, you look through it to get to something more real. You click on it to get to the program. So it so said, you guys are like icons of God to see God through one another. And a kid goes, is that like an app? I said, yeah, it's like, it's like an app, all right? But what was the temple, right? The temple for a good Jew was three things. It was a place of conversation, of conviviality. Um, we shouldn't be so overly pious to think the Jews only went to the temple to pray. I mean, they went there to talk and to gossip and to catch up, you know? Um, are our souls that way? Do we ask for the grace to be the kind of people where others feel comfortable or at home? Do we allow others to speak or are we always putting ourselves in the conversation? Secondly, the temple was a place of teaching. There were, you know, adult ed classes going on all the time. This is precisely, I think, an instantiation and, and a good example. But even outside your lay formation classes, I mean, are you keeping spiritual reading going? Are you um, availing yourself of, of opportunities to grow intellectually in the faith? And then thirdly, the place of sacrifice, of course, was limited to the temple. Jews couldn't offer sacrifice outside Jerusalem. And the sacrifice that you and I offer, of course, are our hearts, right? The morning offering. So, do you notice? On Good Friday, our churches will look like oddly decorated halls, won't they? Many of us will commit idolatry by genuflecting to wood or gold. You know, we talk about sacred space in Catholicism, but technically there are no sacred spaces. There's only sacred people. And the reason we call that sanctuary sacred is because that's where Christ dwells, in that tabernacle. But when he's gone on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, we don't genuflect, we don't treat that church any differently than, you know, any other place, kind of. At least we could. We talk about sacred things, but there are no sacred things for us, right? All things are meant for our flourishing. Even the laws, right? That we weren't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for us. It's the Holy Spirit who makes what was otherwise, what would I say, natural into something supernatural. In fact, where do we first meet the Holy Spirit in Christianity? Gabriel's promise that he will overshadow the womb of Mary. Overshadowing there is that word Shekinah in the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord. That overshadowing is offered at every Mass when you see the priest's hands do this, calling the Holy Spirit down upon what was natural and impersonal, bread and wine, making that now someone supernatural and personal, Jesus Christ. Same thing at Mary's Annunciation, right? Her ovum would have been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, therefore making something natural and impersonal into a living divine being. And so that a moment of Annunciation is continued by the Holy Spirit's pouring at Mass. We have the Angelus devotion, 6 noon and 6, 
right? That we can recall the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. That very concrete moment of our new faith. It's the gospel we hear most often throughout the year. Um, the Annunciation from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And so, I wanted to talk about the three things that the Holy Spirit can do. Okay? Communion, conviction, and consecration. Alright? First, communion. Alright? John will talk about testing the Holy Spirit by admitting that God came in the flesh. So here's your question about the real presence. The good spirit will always incarnate you with others. The bad spirit, the evil spirits, will always inflate you away from others, right? The good spirit leads Jesus into the desert. The evil spirit will lead you away from any kind of intimacy with the Father. 1 John makes it quite clear, right? Do not trust every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they belong to God. Chapter 2 there, or section 2, verse 2. Sorry, I'm Catholic. This is how you can know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ come in the flesh belongs to God. And every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus does not belong to God. So again, the way we test spirits is by looking at the material. Right? The way we understand the invisible is by looking at the visible. Again, that's why we Catholics, we who receive the body of Christ, we who believe in this doctrine of transubstantiation, if we're not living differently, then why would anyone believe that our sacraments have power? If we weren't at least trying to lead holy lives, why would anyone want to trust what we hold is so miraculous at that altar at every moment? Hmm? The Spirit is known by the flesh. Now, many sections in Scripture talking about the Holy Spirit's role is unifying us. And again, think back to this morning. The, the role of the Holy Spirit is the love between the lover and the beloved. The Holy Spirit is the glue, if you will, between the Father and the Son. And if that's His job eternally, how much more will it be here in space and time? The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us. The Holy Spirit is one who really commits three acts of union. He's the one who unites us to God. And think of our prayers. Through Him, with Him, and in Him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is always gathering us to the Father. He also gathers us as church. Right? It's the Holy Spirit who unites these otherwise disparate physical things and makes us into one. Just like your human spirit makes your otherwise disparate fingers and toes and legs and chest into one unified body, the Holy Spirit unifies us around the world. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit unites us to ourselves. The disjointing of sin, the division that sin can cause in our hearts and minds. And it's the Holy Spirit who can unify and regather us, kind of let us know again who we are, to whom we belong. All right? Catechism. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion. Okay? The first grace. Now, what does conversion mean? Well, it means to turn toward. Um, verse versus prose. When you read prose, you're reading straight ahead. That's what pro means. Verse, poetry, means you turn. You have to kind of play with the words and whatnot. Conversion literally means to turn toward. And this is the first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the Gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification is not only remission of sins, but also the sanctification 
Of what? I don't have that on here. You don't know either? That was your first test. No, I don't know. Well, someone told me that Ellen, Dr. Eleanor Stump was here last year. Did you ever hear her, uh, her understanding of grace is this? So here's good Catholic theology. You and I, apart from God, can do two things. We can, we can move away from God. We can continue to sin. Or we can simply stop and not do anything. Any movement toward God requires grace. That's not just bad Calvinism. It's good Catholic theology. Everything that unites us to God is a matter of God's gift to us first. Right? John, Jesus says over and over in the Gospel of John, it's not that you love me, it's that I loved you. Okay? So here's Eleanor, as only a grandmother would say. Here's how grace works. She said, have you ever tried to feed your grandchild strained beets or something that she doesn't want? And she does this all the time. And then you do the airplane, right? Mm. And then finally there comes a point where she goes, and what do you do with your spoon? Boom, right? And what does grandma say? Oh, you're such a good eater. Good job, right? I love that image because that's how grace works. We can't do anything to merit God's grace. It's free gift. The one thing we finally can do is say, I'm tired. I hate sinning. I hate living like this. I hate this habit. Lord, take me. And the second we say, Lord, I surrender. Lord, I stop. I'm not going to walk backwards anymore. I'm going to let you have me. That's called, in the Catholic tradition, operative grace. God can finally operate on us. He has our permission to go to work. Thereafter, that second after that, it's called cooperative grace. We now cooperate with God, right? We now participate in His life. We are free. We are not puppets. And that's a really important foundation for your being here today. All of us are here because we want to grow closer to the Lord. He's never going to drag you into heaven if you don't want to go. He's not going to make you a saint unless you allow him to. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. We have a dignity running throughout Scripture that God treats us only the way we allow him to. God treats us how we treat one another. Measure for measure, Jesus says, right? The measure with, you, the measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. What is the measure by which you view others? What is the lens through which you judge others? Is it efficiency? Is it usefulness? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it love? If we can start seeing each other through the lens of love, right, we'll start to understand the mystical body, and we'll finally be living out that first grace of conversion. We move toward God in order to receive God's love and therefore bring it to others. And that's the Holy Spirit's doing. The second role the Holy Spirit has is to convict us, convict us of our sins. There's a big word difference here. The Holy Spirit wants to convict you, right? Not condemn you. That's the difference. The evil spirit wants to condemn you. The evil spirit's the one that says, you know what, you're no good. You're a sinner. You're destructive. You're ungrateful. All the voices that you and I have carried around since childhood. It's really important to be able to name what those voices are. Okay? We'll see that in a little bit. Satan knows you. He's a fallen angel. He's, he's pretty smart. And he knows where to attack you. But if you're ever feeling mocked or belittled, if you're ever feeling condemned, it's not from God. It's not from the Holy Spirit. That's the way the evil spirit keeps us down. Catechism 1987. The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us. That is, to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. 
But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over us. The death Christ died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin doesn't have to rule over us. We can look at our life story and say, it doesn't have to be this way. I have received the Holy Spirit. I have received the Holy Spirit at baptism, which made me a child of God. Okay. Ignatius of Loyola. Sorry, you knew that was coming eventually. (laughs) He wrote a little thing called the Discernment of Spirits. It's the end of the spiritual exercises. And he's got some really powerful rules on how to understand the difference between the good and the evil spirits in our lives. And we all have them, right? None of us are possessed, but we do have influences, whether it be old natural habits, right? We don't have to chalk everything up to demonic warfare or spiritual warfare. We bring our own stuff to the table. I overeat pizza because I like pizza. I'm not possessed. I mean, right? You should see me at an all-you-can-eat place, so it looks like I probably am. But the first rule of how to tell the good or evil spirits workings is this. In persons who go from mortal sin to mortal sin, the enemy is commonly used to propose to them apparent pleasures, making them imagine sensual delights and pleasures. But in these persons, the good spirit uses the opposite method, pricking them and biting their consciences. When we're caught up in a life of sin, the evil spirit proposes a slothful complacency in the status quo. But the good spirit attempts to show the absurdity of this, slowly seeking to affect an uneasiness and sting of conscience. Again, spirit and body go together. How is a tree known by its fruit? We can't understand the fullness of our spiritual lives until we take not only spiritual inventory, but also look at our actions, our habits, the fruit that we're producing or not in the world. And Ignatius says, look, anybody who moves from mortal sin to mortal sin, the Holy Spirit's going to say... It's going to start bugging your conscience. It's going to start gnawing away at you if you give him any kind of quiet, any kind of stillness. The evil spirit will say, oh, come on, you're not hurting anybody. Oh, come on, it's fine. Oh, come on, nobody even knows, right? Um, All the internet, pornography, all the stuff that nobody else has any idea of. You know, it's eating up our college kids for sure. And Satan says, ah, don't worry. Right? Nobody's ever going to find out. And these kids don't realize how warped they're becoming. None of us probably do in terms of the 10-year study. Huh? This is how Pope Francis looks at you when you move from mortal sin to mortal sin. Right? <laughs> I just found that on the Internet. thought I'd throw it in. Okay. <laughs> Second rule. I would imagine this is most of us. Most of you, at least. Persons who are going from good to better. In persons who are going on cleansing their sins and rising from good to better, the evil spirit bites, saddens, puts obstacles, disquiets with false reasons that one may not go on. But the good spirit gets courage, tears, quiet, easing, and puts away obstacles. Here the evil one tries to arouse a false sadness for things to be missed, to make nervous about persevering, suggesting many roadblocks. The good spirit consoles and inspires. Notice those prefixes of union, cone, with, in, mutual indwelling. Establishing peace and moving to a firm resolve with God's grace as a continuing invitation. Think back three years ago. Did you think you'd really finish? 
Think of your first holy hour in a long, long time. Do you think you were going to get through that? All right. When we are moving from good to better, the Holy Spirit will calm. He won't be as obvious as when we're sinning. He'll be peaceful. He'll be, he'll be kind of silent and gentle. When you're moving from good to better, when you've made a resolve to fix something in your life, to let something, passive voice, to let something in your life be fixed by Christ, the Holy Spirit will be the one saying, oh, come on, no way. You give up smoking, you're going to be half the man you were, right? There's no way you can give up sweets on Friday. There's no way. And that kind of false reasoning, right? I, I go through that all the time, false reasoning, something like this. I really want to get back in shape, so I'm going to run later today. In order to run, I've got to have cake now, um, so I have the energy, right? You've done this, right? False reasoning, Ignatius says, yeah. Holy Spirit is consecration. What does it mean? Sacred, right? Sacred. What does it mean to have something sacred? What does it mean when you have your rosary or your scapulars blessed? It means it's reserved for God's use alone. Part of your soul is sacred. It's where you and the Father talk. No one else should be in there. Right? That kind of quiet temple within each of us. That place where we go. In fact, notice, disquiet. The evil spirit disquiets. Is our world loud or what? Right? We Christians have to be intent on a few silent moments each day. All right? Carve out 5, 10, 15 minutes each day just to be quiet in your prayer chair. Set up an icon. Set up some photographs. Set up something that kind of reminds you that you are a child of the Father. And be... What would I say? I mean, I, I, I just gave a, Saint, a talk out in Wentzville. And St. Pat's Parish, great place. St. Pat's Parish... Yeah, all right. But the spiritual life, Jesus the carpenter, you know, uses in one... The only analogy he ever uses of carpentry is the man who built his house on, on rock and not sand. Every other spiritual image Christ uses, he draws from the fields, from the farming and the world of agriculture. Because our spiritual life is much more like that. The carpenter gets out of his job only what he puts into it, Right? The farmer, at the end of the day, goes home. When he returns in the morning to the field, something's happened under the surface. He can't always detect it. He can't always see the growth, but he knows something's moving. When you and I go to pray, if we tell God, I'm going to give you 15 minutes, stay there for 15 minutes. Don't judge your fidelity by what you think is happening. Your showing up is almost good enough, at least for a while. If you say 15 minutes, stay 15. It doesn't matter if you fall asleep doesn't matter if nothing's happening. But that is the way Ignatius got his men to pray. Set time aside and stay there. And Ignatius would say, if you told God 15 minutes and you find that really difficult, start saying 16, start saying 17. The evil spirit will leave you alone eventually. He doesn't want you to go a whole half hour or something. And so using our bodies as an indicator of the fruitfulness of the spirit is really important. All right. So, consecration. Where do we understand and find our sacredness throughout the day? And that answer might be different for all of us. I trust that we understand the sacraments are sacred. Scripture is sacred. But we all have sacred things, reminders of God's love, people, conversation, places, events. What is sacred? Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. There's that notion of sacrifice, temple, body again to God, which is your spiritual surface of worship. We should be worshiping God all day long. Not just on Sundays, not just at Mass, 
but by thanking God for all the things throughout our lives. And not just the nice things, but when we can start to thank God even for the challenging things, we're on our way to understanding what Good Friday is about. Right? All right. Well, let me read that from Ignatius. When we're open to the loving invitation to God in our life, we find that the good spirit tends to give support, encouragement, and oftentimes even sweet delight in our endeavors. All right? When we're open to God, life seems a little sweeter, a little more purposeful. In fact, one of the things I didn't notice on the left-hand side, um, where was the thing? There was something about tears. Yeah, okay. Ignatius was of the opinion, and you can disagree with him, that tears are always from the good spirit. So you criers, good job, all right? <laughs> but if you're sad and it's flowing out of you, great. If you're happy and break down, that's great. But for him, tears were always a sign of God's movement in our lives. Even when we commit atrocious acts of sin, we, we cry. It means, yeah, we understand that was wrong. All right? So, Ignatius. As one continues to make progress in Christ, the good spirit is very delicate and gentle. You know, Thomas Aquinas, 300 years before Ignatius, says this, the proud person, the proud person, a sign of pride, is the need for novelty. Think of your teenage kid. The drama, right? There's always drama. I hate that about teaching at SLU. The kids, are, there's always drama. What? A squirrel got ran over on Venator. We're going to, you know, we're going to boycott cars. Um, right? When our lives are holy and good, it's gentle. It's second nature, if you will. We're participating in someone much greater and more trusting than anything else. And so life doesn't have to have the ups and downs. It can just be... And I say this because I imagine a lot of us, like, I'm not, what am I doing that's so special to be holy? Well, maybe you're doing exactly what God needs you to do. The Holy Spirit's just gentle and sweet with you, tender, intimate, like a friend. The good spirit is very delicate and gentle. He touches us as a drop of water on a sponge. That was Ignatius' famous example. As opposed to, the enemy is violent and disturbing, like water hitting hard on a stone. Of course, in persons opposite, growing away from Christ, the description here is just the converse. The reason for this lies in the conflict of opposing forces in our fallen world. All right, so he's saying the same thing now with those different images and the tears. Tres of Lisieux, we'll end there. When consolation is uncaused, it comes from God and cannot deceive. When you are having a really joyful, intimate kind of day, and you can't point back to any reason why it's all gift, it's what Ignatius calls consolation. Soul in Latin, sun. You're feeling alive, you're feeling warm, you're feeling creative, integrated. All the things you like about yourself. It's total gift, right? That's what Jesus means. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We don't have to be materially poor. Some are called to that, of course. But what it means to be poor in spirit is to realize everything I have has been given to me. It's like my mom's Mother's Day gift, right? Everything that I'm giving back to her was first given to me. That's what it means to be spiritually poor. And so when consolation is uncaused, it just means, God, you are so good. You're so awesome. I don't deserve these people in front of me. Think of that tomorrow at Sunday dinner, for example. Right? I wish half of them were here, but right now, you know, I love them, right? But be careful. Distinguish the very moment of this consolation in God from the afterglow, which may be exhilarating and joyful for a natural period of time. Often during this period, what I call the retreat high, we make changes or resolutions which are not necessarily God's will. 
Discern well with a holy person before any resolution or new plan of action is adopted. Oftentimes, we will receive the Holy Spirit and we will be encouraged to do something and then when we step back a day or two later, we think, was that really from God? I told God I was never going to eat again, right? That's how my Lent always starts. I give up sleeping and breathing, right? And about two minutes later, I realized that was a dumb mistake. God doesn't need our grandiose actions. He doesn't need our huge successes. He simply needs you. And I wanted to end this way because the spirit, I think, as Ignatius says, is gentle and delicate. And I don't want anyone here thinking that you're missing out on something. Maybe that's just the way God's treating you right now. As a friend, as one who doesn't need a lot of huge new things, but simply to stay the course. Be faithful. Go back to your parishes and let your presence, your smile, your wisdom... Because if you've been here for three years, you know a lot more than most people. And most people, right, most people just kind of so abstract God that they don't have very particular concrete things or questions. But hopefully in conversations through you, you can show them the brilliance of our faith. Because the more we know, the more reasons we have to love. And that's what the community of the saints is, if I can say. The community of the saints is the admittance that none of us are here for ourselves. The communion of saints is the living instantiations of Christ's own life. So those of you who are plumbers, you know, what did Jesus know about plumbing? But I'm sure there's a patron of plumbing somewhere. I don't know who it is, right? But what did Jesus know about being a mother? What did Jesus know about, um, you know, being a farmer? All those things that we have patron saints for, they show us like a stained glass window, different kinds of reflections of the only one true son. That's a good way of understanding saints, I think. We don't pray, technically, friends, we don't pray to saints. We pray through them or with them. Saints are no different than when I ask you to pray for me. Some non-Catholic Christians worry that we're taking away from Christ, but no. Christ is the only one who can answer prayer. He's the only one that has power. But see, he's not a micromanager. He loves to share what he can with his creatures. That's why he founded a church. That's why he called these 12 people together. That's why he needed this woman of Nazareth, Mary. Of course, God can do anything, you know, snap his fingers, but he loves to share with his creatures what he can. And the communion of saints, in one way, is no different than when you and I talk to each other. Who in here is a great singer alone? (laughs) Not many of us. But when we sing together, doesn't it sound better? Same thing with prayer. You can pray alone, but notice what happens. When you allow others to pray for you, you're taking a step into vulnerability, aren't you? You're taking a step into saying, here, here's what I need. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I want. Could you pray with me, for me? That is what Christ wants. That's what our hearts are made for. That's why Christ founded a church of many people. Hmm? Okay. There was another question. Um, Yeah. No, that was it. The other one was the the, the real presence. All right. Let's pray this together. O most Holy Spirit, receive the consecration that I make of my entire being. From this moment on, come into every area of my life and into each of my actions. Thou art my light, my guide, my strength, and the sole desire of my heart. I abandon myself without reserve to thy divine action, and I desire to be ever docile to thine inspirations. O Holy Spirit, transform me with and through Mary into another Christ Jesus, for the glory of the Father and the salvation of the world. And may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.